0: Greetings and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is J.G. McQuarrie and I'm here with my co-host Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Well, the computer has
1: my name up and looks like I'm next designated to be sacrificed as part of the war. So until
0: then, though, let's finish this podcast. Okay, well, yes, hopefully your execution orders will give us enough time to discuss this week's episode, which, in that also cryptic way that we always manage to do at the start of the show, is um, a taste of Armageddon this week, uh, but we couldn't possibly manage it alone. So um, say hello to our guest, Rachel. Hello. Hello. I'm saying
2: hello to myself now.
0: Yes, I realize I slightly misphrased that, but you know what I mean. Hello, Rachel. <laughs> How are you today? <laughs> yeah,
2: hello. Good morning.
0: <laughs> so, uh, we've only been doing this for about a year and podcasting together for about five years. So, you know, we obviously there's still plenty of room for mistakes.
2: Um, I mean, you know, I'm always happy to say hello to myself. That doesn't bother me.
0: Well, I'm very glad to hear it. Um, and also very glad that you've managed to invite the Disintegration Chamber to join us um, yes. this week. So, yeah. Um, yeah uh a taste of armageddon well before we crack on with it as we always do we like to ask our guests what their history with the show is so um rachel what's your history with star trek
2: yeah so i am uh definitely a star trek uh fan um so i first saw the original series uh many years ago i guess like about 20 years ago uh when i was a fifth grader um, my Uh, My dad is the kind of person who thinks that parenting should involve a syllabus, so uh, he definitely, like, one of the first, like, when I was, like, in fourth, fifth grade, we started watching Star Trek, the original series, and Monty Python together, Um, and that was kind of the first grown-up shows that we watched together, so I really uh, watched through all of the original series, and then kind of as time went on, watched through all of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, um, which is probably my favorite one. And then I've seen most of the original series, you know, again, when my dad watched it with my sister. Um, so few a th- through a few times. Uh, so definitely very familiar. And I've seen this episode a few times before and, and I'm happy to discuss it.
0: Fantastic. Have you watched much of the 21st Century Star Trek?
2: Um, I've seen uh, about two thirds of Discovery, uh, I gave up, I think, one or two seasons ago. And then I watched the first season of Picard. I've seen all of Lower Decks. I saw all of Strange New Worlds. And I've seen all of the, you know, post 2009 movies for whatever that that's worth. Um that's so worth, that's worth
0: a surprising amount on this podcast. It's amazing how right. many people, <laughs> Kev, uh, have come to the uh, have come to the show via those movies.
2: All right. Well, I have seen them. I do have opinions on them, so
0: <laughs> <laughs> they they do tend to generate opinions. There's no doubt yes. about that. that. Uh,
2: you know, I would say uh, very solid, unbelievably terrible, very solid would be my. <laughs> my one two three through them
0: that's a that's a good thumbnail sketch for them thank you very yeah. much um, well yes yeah, so let's um crack on with the episode itself and uh kev would you care to give us our usual summary all right
1: a taste of armageddon has the uss enterprise traveling to MNR 7 uh they are there to uh with an ambassador to negotiate peace between that and the planet vendicar that the ndr7 is uh at war with when they get down to the planet they discover that it's not a war that is being fought in a conventional means but instead computers on both planets are simulating war and whoever is flagged as dying in the war is then executed in real life on the planet uh, the enterprise is labeled by these computers as a casualty on the outskirts and therefore kirk and his crew who beams down are all slated for execution kirk and spock do a lot of running around escaping and getting recaptured and such um, and blowing up these sort of execution chambers until kirk finally gets to confront the head of the person doing all of this. Uh, In the meantime, Scotty and Bones are holding on the ship. Uh, The ambassador, Fox, he renegades their warnings and beams down and gets captured as well. Uh, Meanwhile, Scotty is given orders by Kirk to blow up MNR7 if they uh, are not returned in time. Kirk manages, however, to negotiate peace by explaining, basically doing one of his classic Kirk monologues about how war is like, needs to be messy so it can be avoided and manages to broker peace between the planets
0: fantastic thank you very much well this is one of those episodes that i think is probably quite well known even if you're not a star trek fan it's just a a classic setup and a, a lovely little slice of uh, a lovely little slice of star trek but before we get into it let's get through our sort of general impressions so uh, Rachel, you're our guest first so um how did you find this one
2: uh, it's a banger. <laughs> um, I, I love this episode. I was actually really excited when uh, Kev asked me to come on the show and told me which episode it would be, because this is a real classic. Uh, so I was very excited to rewatch it, and it absolutely holds up.
0: <laughs> Excellent. And Kev, how did you find it? Uh,
1: a banger. Yeah. It's um, it's actually interesting you said this is a one people know about. I actually did not know anything about this episode going in. Oh, that's but interesting. But yeah, I... The general sense, uh, if someone had told me there's a Star Trek episode where people like kill themselves in a simulated war, I'd probably be like, "Oh, that sounds familiar." But otherwise, I, yeah, I have no specific knowledge of this one. It's, but it still feels like so Star Trekky in that nature. Like I, it, like if this episode did not already exist, I feel like it would have to, you know, <laughs> it just. Mm-hmm it just feels like so much part of the show um is in this one and it's also just like i don't know i feel like in that episode summary i was talking about getting captured and recaptured and there's a lot of a a lot of the similar beats we've hit especially in the recent run of episodes but this one does those beats so much better which we'll get into
0: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: yeah no i think that's i think that's entirely fair it's one of those stories that is it's it's it might be the most Star Trekky Star Trek story that Star Trek's ever Star Trek. But it's also interesting because I don't think it would take a great deal of work to retool it as an episode of The Outer Limits or The Twilight Zone or something. You'd need to, you know, um, it would probably be uh, like more of a Nazi allegory. So the disintegration chambers would probably be like, you know, pseudo-concentration camps, which they definitely aren't in this episode. But I don't think it would take all that much retooling for it to be like, yeah, some kind of other... Um, sci-fi episode, and yet there's just something so irreducibly Star Trek about the concept, about the way that it's executed, if you'll excuse the pun, and uh, the way that it's all all kind of put together. It's very, yeah, it's just really very, very Star Trek.
1: Yeah. I mean, the point you just made about, like, if this was Outer Limits or Twilight Zone, they'd make it more specific to, like, something we recognize, I really like this episode doesn't do that. It's working on more broad strokes. Because, like, it would be so weird to land on, like, the Mussolini planet or whatever. It would just, you know, it mm-hmm. would just be, like, it it's so, works so much better if it is just, like, a very blank slate society. With, like, cool costumes and fun design of their little base. But otherwise, because uh, working in such a bro- much a broader swath of this is what all war is like. And if you just drill it down to numbers. Um, yeah, I mean. It reminds me. Just making this connection in my head right now. It reminds me a lot of that Kubrick film *Paths of Glory*, where it's Love very much about. Yeah, it's so much about like a soldier's contrast between the contrast of the soldiers on the field dying in blood, sweat, and tears, and the military men cutting back to them and them being like, "Well, we'll gain some more numbers if we push soldiers this way, and only this many soldiers will die." And you can definitely see like Kirk representing the appropriately uh, Kirk Douglas character yeah. as opposed to like the, um, <laughs> the important distinction the, yeah the stuffed shirts in the room being like those stuffed shirts
2: it's interesting how they make so much of that the reason they do this is to preserve their culture um which mm-hmm. i think you know thinking about that uh 19 what year is this 1967 context i think you know there's that question of both the world war ii bombings like in dresden in hiroshima and then the wars in asia that are happening at the time like i think this idea of cultural destruction was kind of current at the moment
0: yeah very definitely and i think i think it's interesting because i don't think that this really functions as a, a direct cold war parable Mm -hmm. um because there there isn't really a, a a realistic equivalent in the real world to this this kind of situation but at the same time there are elements of it which kind of suggest that so for example that i think that cult that point about like the cultural destruction is very well made because that was that was the big fear about communism coming over was that it would you know like wipe out the american way of life and and all that kind of stuff i think the idea sort of as an extension of that that um you know, the cities are left untouched um, also kind of comes across because if you, if you wanted to, now you can tell me if this is an overread or not. If you mm. wanted to, you could read the idea of the Cold War happening in places like Korea and Vietnam, yeah. but not happening in London or Washington or Moscow. Um, oh, yeah. So their cities are left untouched. There's still a war yeah. going on. People are still dying in their in their thousands and and tens of thousands but those cities are are left unscathed by it
2: yeah i mean like i said i I really thought about the dresden bombing and how that that kind of gained this reputation of being a situation where the casualties were needless in the sense of the cultural elements that were destroyed rather than the humans that were destroyed um and it kind of became a sense of well we had to do the war but we shouldn't have destroyed that amazing city um and, and kind of that coming in uh, so I did, I did think about that a bit as I was watching.
1: I was about to bring up the Cold War as well and sort of remark the parallel is sort of their, the bloodless war of it. And I, because I, I wasn't thinking of the Korea War and the Vietnam War. And you're right, those are like actual conflicts where people died and it, we just label them as differently than the Cold War. And that's how we skirt around that sort of ugly truth where we think of the Cold War as like this almost miraculously bloodless war where it's like these two nations were at fraught with each other for years and almost stayed fraught because of the culture. Like The reason it heated up again in the 80s, as I understand it, is just because the government could not imagine a world where we weren't competing with Russia. And so that just sort of leads it to like, yeah, these two nations are going to constantly be fighting with each other. And even though they're taking these direct actions to kill each other, quote unquote, kill each other, I suppose, in their own weird way, like, like, that's the point we could get to with Russia eventually if we decided to make it hot, but still we're too afraid to, like, fire off nukes or actually invade each other.
2: Yeah, and I mean, just going off the Cold War context, what Kirk ends up saying is that the reason that this particular type of war is so bad is because they'll never really want to get peace if it doesn't get worse. Like, if the war is always, like, livable, like, that's how they were able to continue having this war for, it's like, thousands of years in the... um in the episode but like so I think there's this argument that the cold war or cold wars in general are able to go on for an amount of time that would be unsustainable with you know a a traditional war and that that's in some ways a way that making war more humane is almost inexcusable because the more humane a war is the longer it can go on
1: so Kirk and the show itself is
0: very accelerationist. Now we know their political yeah. take.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that does seem to be the take of this episode.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's also one of those episodes where, and and this sort of bears the contrast uh, to the Return of the Archons, uh, it's another one of those episodes where Kirk more or less just imposes a point of view on mm-hmm. a planet, and that point of view is Western liberalism. Now, he clearly doesn't want to be caught up in this. He's clearly not really that interested in in getting he just wants to drop off an incredibly irritating diplomat and get the hell out of there. Fair enough. Who could argue with that? Um but since he does get dragged into it despite his best efforts, it's interesting to see his approach here because um because he does have that reluctance to get involved. Like when it was when we were talking about Return of the Archons, the whole point about that is he just decides. You know, he Mm. just puts his foot down, we're gonna blow up the computer with let's say logic and you know hope for the best but see ya Julio, uh, best of luck to you all um here he kind of he's sort of doing the same thing but he's not doing it through kind of the imposition of um you know values simply for the sake of it he's doing that because he doesn't really have any choice so the question is i suppose does it make any kind of moral difference if he's still imposing the same values, whether he wants to or not?
2: Well, it's also his, his little theory turns out being 100% correct. Like, right. They've never been motivated to make peace over thousands of years. And the second that Kirk turns it into a shooting war, they're at peace. So he clearly is correct. um, Which I think also, you know, in terms of how his moral, perspective is portrayed i think the fact that he's portrayed as being 100 percent factually accurate is is relevant to how the you know the show is portraying his his morality
1: yeah it's something we run into a lot in this show where like kirk is basically always right um yep. like the, the, it's a show that very rarely challenges its main characters uh moral beliefs and right. i that sometimes can really bump the wrong way and i think you can make an i don't know i feel like there is definitely a world where i can watch this episode and I'll also be on the wrong way by that but i think just the way just taking the episode on its own terms he's so eloquent uh both kirk and shatner and his performance of kirk mm-hmm. and like expressing these ideas and values that you kind of do believe that yeah they would call this war off like yeah. he, he is making sense
2: yeah i think also just the the way that the the main official who i forget his title is so passionate about this idea that even that his own wife died and like it's okay no matter how many people die as long as their culture survives which they're like thing where they wear pants with different color legs is very cool but like I don't know if it's worth that many lives <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I, I do think like he has almost a he reminds me a lot of sort of present day you know uh like return guys on twitter where the whole deal is all about these outward signifiers of culture and that's the most important thing that we can preserve even over human life Um, it's very repulsive you know
1: yes and with those people specifically it's not even like actual culture but like their memory of culture as they understand it like they don't even like aren't even engaging with these i don't know greek statues or whatever in like the actual context it's just yeah And he, uh, to it, me
2: when he says our culture is preserved like he's saying that the buildings are preserved like if lots of people are dying i don't think your culture remains the same as it was before the war that's that's not possible but to his mind as long as their you know octagonal doors or whatever are not coming down with a bomb like their culture is preserved and that's very similar to those, to those greek statue guys to me <laughs>
0: Well, and the the idea that the horror of war is is something that needs to be reinforced so soon after the end of the Second World War yeah. is 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 kind of an interesting take as well. I suppose also the I mean the Korean War is being gone by this point as well. Mm-hmm. But it's it's definitely one of those things where you think like uh, it's not necessarily like the most obvious take. I think that when I was talking about Kirk's morality earlier on, I think that's one of the, one of the things that kind of does mark it out as different because there is a real investment in the actual dirtiness of war, of the unpleasantness, of the death, of the destruction, of the, the actual, impact of it back when we were talking about return of the archons um one of the things about it is is that for all that there was the you know the red hour and and the purge and all that kind of stuff it was very i mean they did their best within the constrictions of 1960s television but in the end you know it doesn't it's, it, it, it's just a function of the plot. It's not necessarily any deeper than that. Whereas here, like, there's a real investment in the idea that war is genuinely horrific. And so we should do everything we can to avoid it and, and not sterilize it, not reduce it to these numbers. In a way, it's kind of almost, it's almost, oh, what's the word? It's almost precognitive in the way that people talk about drone warfare now Mm -hmm. and the idea that people can just sit in a room it's almost as if they're playing a computer game they're completely disconnected from the actions they're taking so no matter how many weddings get blown up in iraq or no matter how many family homes get destroyed in afghanistan like Mm -hmm. those people aren't that fussed by it because to them it's just numbers on a screen it's it's Mm -hmm. prescient that's the word i'm looking for it's very prescient Mm -hmm. in that sense
1: yeah and it's just like off that sort of prescience it just it also feels very classical in a way the way they're dealing with this it's the the idea of like sacrificing to like prevent a bigger harm i mean it's very amelas by like Guin. it reminded me most of like shirley jackson's the lottery and i think Mm -hmm. it's like that sort of literary precedent also helps give the episode like a specificity that just like archon's like vague purgy kind of ideas (laughs) like there was a lot of (laughs) lack of specificity in other dystopian society episodes you've been talking about whereas this one it's a very clean cut this happens so this happens so this happens and it's very clearly horrific instead of having to hide what the bad stuff is
2: i mean i think also going off what you said about the horrors of war being reinforced i mean we take it for granted in 2023 that Star Trek is about a pacifist military. But at the time, that's something they had to, you know, this is from the first season. They were still really bringing that idea home that they follow these military structures and yet they're heavily, heavily pacifist, which is a contradiction. And so this episode really drives home. It really drives home both aspects because there's a lot of... Sort of jockeying over who can give commands to who in the sort of plot about the logistics of the enterprise. But then there's also this heavily pacifist, you know, theme of the episode. And so I feel like there's almost just this work put into just just establishing the world of the Federation of Planets and what the values are going to be there.
1: I was surprised that Order 24 at the end was not a bluff.
2: Yeah. Like that company's really
1: willing to destroy the planet.
2: Even having seen the episode before, I I was like, I had forgotten that it wasn't a bluff. I was like, oh yeah, he's going to tell Scotty, like, thanks for playing along with that. But no, it's completely like, they apparently have some kind of Death Star weapon on board. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird one, that, that, that idea that they'll just, well, you know, bugger you, we're just going to blow you up and that's the end of the story. Um, I mean, it, it does give a dramatic heft, but it's hard to imagine uh, that kind of approach working even outside of just the first season of the original star trek i can't really imagine that sitting in season two or three it certainly would never fly in in next gen or anything that sort of goes forward from that it's very yeah, it's
2: also just in terms of the world building it's not a technology yeah. that i would think of fitting into the world of star trek like the idea that they have this death star weapon that could destroy a planet it's hard for me to imagine that level of destructive power being something that exists like if a character on Deep space nine said they had a weapon that could destroy a planet, that would be like a season long arc of figuring out if they're telling the truth.
0: Well, <laughs> you know? it, it's, it's literally the conclusion to one episode of Voyager, uh, Scorpion part one mm-hmm. d- uh, ends with the Borg literally being able to like, completely annihilate a planet like physically Mm -hmm. blow it apart and it's a massive cliffhanger that's a huge deal (laughs) yeah that's that's two decades after this you know so um yeah yeah, it it definitely
2: isn't considered like something that typically you would have on a normal starship the arsenal to do just destroy a planet so it felt very out of keeping almost more out of keeping in that technological sense than in the like, would they really do that sense?
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was more like they were going to start bombing. Like, it's not like they could blow up the planet in a snap of a finger, but more like, and we'll start targeting the major cities, and we'll start then blowing up what we can. And like, they still have them guns outmatched, and it would still cause a lot of damage. That's possible. But I guess, yeah, and so it would lead to the destruction of the planet. But yeah, I didn't think of it like a
0: okay. Death Star laser. Okay. Well, okay well, I think also Very much hairs here. <laughs> I think also it's one of those things that if you want to go back to like our cold War analogy, I suppose we could take that threat, that general order as as kind of like in, literally the nuclear option as as in it's it's an analogy for nuclear weapons. So if we take what Kev says as the literal thing, i.e., they'll they'll destroy the planet in, in the sense that they'll just blow up all the cities, but it's not physically going to be torn apart, then then it really does become a nuclear analogy, and it, and it has that that thing where as well, if you have nuclear weapons, are you actually prepared to use them? Now, for all that this this episode really kind of genuflexes over over its pacifist stance and how how far they want to take that, like I said, it's not a bluff. Like, Scotty's really going to rain death down to these people if they're not giving back, you know? Death from above, thank you for giving that role to the Scotsman. Very much appreciated. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, it it, it 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 kind of brings up those kind of questions as well. If you have weapons which are capable of doing this, are you prepared to use them? And And the answer here is given very, very clearly. Yes, we are absolutely prepared to do this.
1: It is so fascinating and complex that Star Trek... Is like doing this very pacifist episode and still emphasizing the message but war and actual conflict is necessary if needed like the reason the two planets are able to make peace so quickly is it's implied if not outright stated the reasons for war are like either a lost of time b so petty it's not worth mentioning or a combination of the two it's there there was no reason for this war and that's what makes it so horrific almost in its way but like it also is emphasizing but yeah if People are being captured and people being died like we do need to resort to violence sometimes to get results because otherwise you let people sort of trample all over you i guess is the idea and i don't know if that's necessarily something i fully believe but it's also just it's just interesting that the episode is willing to have that contradiction inside of itself
2: i mean i think the take of the episode is that it's not a contradiction that you know part of the reason part of pacifism is making sure that we can't cushion ourselves like like jg was saying can't cushion ourselves from the effects of war at all so if there is a war like almost it's a very like anti-harm reduction stance almost of like if you're cushioned from the effects of what you're doing at all you'll never stop so i think it's sort of for the sake of pacifism we can never make war less bloody or less horrifying because that will mean that we could get into a society where we don't care about war so it's very it's taking the position that war is very bad no matter how good it gets like obviously in this instance like people are still dying but it almost takes this position even if they could come up with a way to do the war where no one's dying if the two societies were to remain formally at war that would still not be worth it and it would still be better to have this one violent moment that they then get over than to have thousands of years of war that are basically livable so it's this very like hardline pacifist stance where war is bad qua war rather than for the effects of war.
1: I mean, that, that almost makes me think of like real life social situations. You can apply this metaphor <laughs> down so deep where it's just like better to have a fight with a friend than to just resent each other
0: for months or whatever. Oh
1: yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 It's
1: just, it's such an interesting point of view.
0: And, and I'll, I'll explain to us by by Captain Kirk in, in, in one rather long speech yeah. <laughs> right, right at the end of the episode. Um, i got to say... For all that I really enjoy this episode, and for all that we are a very pro Shatner podcast, I'm not sure that this is his most measured performance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, quite. Um, it's it's like, he's good. He, he And when he has to come up with that speech, I think he kind of, he does pretty much nail it. There are a few moments earlier on in the episode where you can kind of tell we're getting towards the end of the first episode, uh, first season rather. Uh, yeah. There's a there's a sense where he's kind of, I don't want to say going through the motions. That's too harsh. Um, but he's not quite landing the conviction on the planet with the way uh, that he might have done a little bit earlier on in the season, and particularly um, like a lot of his initial dealings with the um, the 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 council. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the counselor it's it's a bit i don't know it, he needs a little bit more steel in the way that he's he's delivering it and it doesn't undermine the message of the episode it doesn't undermine what it's trying to do um but it's just a little bit of a shame that this is the episode um which is really good and he's slightly not quite at his best whereas in last last episode's episode which was space seed like shatner is really good and an absolutely absolute dog of an episode so i just thought myself from swearing there um you know it's a shame those two weren't the other way around
2: i do feel like just to like give shatner some credit i think one thing i noticed as i was watching i wondered if they had made some strange decisions on their uh extras budget because I noticed that none of the council members other than the main guy speak at all and there's tons of like little moments throughout the episode where other minor actors speak and I kind of felt like you should have spent the speaking actor money on the counselors Um, (laughs) (laughs) because I do feel like those guys constantly being silent doesn't give anybody a lot to play off of in the scenes with them Um, so I I don't Mm -hmm. know what the choice was that those other counselors would be non-speaking actors but it felt odd to me as i was watching and i felt like maybe if the council had more of a presence then like kirk opposing them would feel less like he's talking to this one guy and more like he's opposing the whole regime
1: right um yeah it's i think kirk has very much settled into a groove at this point in the show is the best way i can think of putting it he can still definitely uh activate himself if needed and really tear into a monologue as he does near the end of this but otherwise he's like just so comfortable doing the sh- the kirk thing that shatner can really just like yeah just i think coast as you said jg he's um yeah he doesn't really wow me until that very end of the episode uh this is yeah, really say. more. Uh, sorry i would say there's really more nimoy I might have gotten to the same point, actually. This is more Nimoy and Spock's
0: episode, for sure.
2: I was exactly about to say that, like, even though Kirk is technically more active, like, I think of this as a Spock episode all the way down.
0: <laughs> I, I, I just sort of slightly slight sidebar on that is that I, when I was watching this episode earlier on this afternoon, uh, my, my partner was in the room, and, and he said, um, I uh, I don't like him, pointing at the screen. And I said, who? And he said, Kirk. And I said, why? He said he's too pretty for this (laughs) (laughs) um, okay that's a point of view but like nobody's saying that about spock but spock is just such a much more effective presence in this episode Mm
2: -hmm. and not just because he has that great moment with the multi-legged creature (laughs) Which is, oh, has yeah. to be like one of my favorite moments of the original series.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, one of my favorite Spock moments of the original series is in this as well, which is basically Spock molesting a wall whilst trying to oh, make a yeah. with some guy on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. They
2: really go hard on the Vulcan powers in this one. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> to, to great Vul- effect.
0: Vulcanian powers in this episode, yes. no less. Oh, yes.
1: Oh, yes.
2: Uh, but...
1: Uh, just shouting out Spock lines. Practicing a peculiar variety of diplomacy is a great one.
2: Yes. Uh, just to give the details of the one that I just mentioned, he he goes up to a guard and says, uh, there's a multi-legged creature ca- crawling on you. And then when the guard goes to look, he nerf pinches him. And it's uh, just a really great moment that Nimoy obviously plays like incredibly dry.
1: Oh, yeah. It's, it's so funny. Like, I think this is also around the time... Like, we've noticed more recently that the writers know how to play to Nimoy, like, comedically yep. as well as dramatically. Uh, it's definitely something they're figuring out early on, but now they have a really good um, sort of system of getting those jokes in.
0: And there's, 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 right at the, you know that final bridge scene as well, when they're all standing around mm-hmm. trying to be jocular? There's It's another one of those incredibly slashable moments between um mm-hmm. Kirk and Spock where where they're having their little joke over what's happened in the episode and and, and Kirk sort of says, Oh well, you know, sometimes Mr. Spock, um uh, feelings are all us humans have to go on. And then it mm-hmm. they, like cuts back to Spock with a raised eyebrow and you're just waiting mm-hmm. for Kirk to say, now kiss me, you fool. It's, just, <laughs> it's, 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 it's one of the most slashable moments we've had so far in the series. Yeah. Um, and again it's because they're both leading into the comedy aspect, but because uh, Shatner and Namoya is such a great kind of rapport together, it, it kind of becomes unavoidable.
1: The show has gotten really comfortable with those like, end of episode bridge scenes where they all just sort of joke around to the end of it. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mixed results, this is a good one. I also like the kiss off lines of, you make me believe in luck while you make me believe in miracles. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all great stuff. Yeah,
2: also this episode, uh, speaking of people with lines, we get a lady red shirt with a ton of lines.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, Tamura, I believe.
2: Yes. Uh, I looked her up. Uh the actor, whose name is Miko Mayama, and she lived with Burt Reynolds in Japan for several years.
0: <laughs> wow. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that, that might be the most sixties thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yep. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I I wish she showed up in more episodes. She had like a great yeah. presence. Doesn't, yeah, she yeah. was
2: great. And I do feel like it's unusual for there to be a woman, like, member of the away team like that, who gets right. so much of a focus. Um, she is still, her her rank is still yeoman, but she does seem like she's a, a valued member of the crew in a way that you don't always see with the female characters.
1: Right. I don't see the memory alpha bullet point sort of confirming this, but I, I suspect that was, like, a Rand role that was, like, hastily rewritten mm. with all that going on. Definitely possible. But... um.
0: Well, and it's nice. It's it's nice that it's somebody who's Asian as well, rather than just, uh, you know, that's that's still markedly unusual in 1967. And yet, you know, there's no commentary on it. Nobody says anything. She's just like this week's red shirt. I mean, she doesn't die, but you know, that's all. That's all she is. Um, No, it's true though. Diminutive, but it's just like it's it's a role which has been filled by somebody who's Japanese American, and that's just how things are. And that's that's that's. You know, it's, it's that kind of quiet progressiveness that Starfuck sometimes does so well. This is not it a role does. that has
2: any particular reason to be a Japanese woman and that they went ahead and did that anyway. Like this could easily have been a male character, could easily have been a white male character. And they uh, the fact that they go out of their way to make sure that that's not every single time, which it still is most of the time. So it was right. pretty notable to see that it was not in this episode. And I'm wondering, you know, who made that decision. But uh, I loved it.
1: Yeah, It it does kind of bum me out whenever we have these like extras that pop like this, that we're not knowing the history of Star Trek, we're not going to get any more besides Chekhov. We already have Uhura, Sulu, and Scotty, who started Mm -hmm. off as day players, like, and then getting locked in further and further. But Mm -hmm. now it's just, um, yeah, all we have to do is wait for Chekhov to be introduced next season. No one else is going to be plucked from, even though there are multiple attempts, I don't know with this actor specifically, but we've talked about other Guest stars in the past who they would have invited back, but then something got in the way. So yeah, there's so much more possibility for like a more recurring stable.
2: I will say also though that watching Next Generation, exact same thing happens. There's some you know ensign in Next Generation who will be amazing, and then you're like, oh, there's one more episode. (laughs) So it definitely Mm -hmm. is something that's just kind of inherent to the to the nature of having these huge crews that only a few of them can be recurring characters.
0: Next generation really lucked out with Colney yes. being able to come back again and again and yes. again and build up that role. That's exactly how you want these kind of recurring characters to start off, like they just get a couple of lines, then a handful of lines, then a few scenes, and then and then and suddenly
2: we're at their wedding and
0: and that's just, it's just <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and 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 and, and, yes. and Worf has become a midwife, so it's all it's all good stuff, you know, um but yeah, that's just not how television functions in in nineteen sixty seven which is which is a shame, yeah. I, I, it's the one thing Discovery does, really not the one only thing, but
1: like for all that show's faults, <laughs> one thing yes, Discovery does really well. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of faults in Discovery, but it's one thing that does really well is that bridge crew remains remarkably consistent. And I still wish they had more to do, but at least it's fun seeing the familiar faces over and over again.
2: You, you know, it's funny that you say that because I've often felt like that was a weakness of Discovery that we only get to know... The regulars and yeah. that there's not that feeling of a whole community on the ship the way that there is on next generation where there'll often be you know someone in engineering or someone in on the bridge who has a few lines gets a name but they're not core to the cast and i've always felt like it's kind of a weakness of discovery or a way didn't feel as star trekky that we really only get to know our recurring characters so it's interesting to me that you that you feel the opposite way
1: i mean I haven't seen much of Next Generation to compare, I guess. But yeah, yeah it's I mean, yeah, I it's it's frustrating because all these characters in Discovery are in this sort of middle ground where mm-hmm. I, I recognize a lot of them and have now just I, this is going to be a very uncharitable way of phrasing it, but almost through Stockholm syndrome, I am very <laughs> yeah, fond of. Totally.
2: But it is like there many are so of many, them. like you said, there's so many, there's so many characters on Discovery, like you said, in the middle ground where. They are not that one time episode. Oh, that's a fun character to meet for an episode. But there's Mm. also so many of them that there's not really enough time for them to all become beloved characters in that way. So I feel like there is I almost feel like the way that they chose to do it was not as effective as just having them pop in and out. But um, I I can also see like getting liking to get attached to them for certain.
1: Uh, neither fish nor fowl, that sort of dilemma is
0: endemic yeah. of a lot of aspects of Discovery. <laughs> yes,
2: it is. Yeah. That is certainly true.
1: Yeah,
0: you have to remember, I think there's actually, a, um, I think it might be like the 29th Amendment of the US Constitution that states that Star Trek Discovery can actually only be about Michael Burnham and nobody else is allowed to look at him. <laughs> 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 there's yeah. just nothing that you can do about that. That's just the law. So you have to, you just have yeah. to live with it. But speaking of the side characters, I have to, I, I also have my own legal obligation at this point to uh to mention the fact that this is by a country mile the most scotty has had to do in an episode up to this point he gets yes. all oh, a lot yeah. of stuff to go in this yes episode. he gets to
2: be in command
0: <laughs> yeah he gets to mention haggis which just made my own little set of bagpipes that reside within oh. well with pride as you can imagine you know it's a yes. whole thing but like it's a really meaty role for him the only person, no it's great the only person doesn't really get much to do in this episode actually is mccoy he kind of stamps the suit in the bridge a bit and that's a bit it, yeah. about it but um um, yeah, yeah really, even
2: uhura has her has her business
0: yeah exactly but it's nice to see a character like scotty being brought forward in this way like james Dewan was really popular the character was really popular yes. so they started you know writing more and more towards him and he's st- he, this is really where we get the kind of the it's not the first time we get the idea that he's got this you know great loyalty and that he won't back down from something that whole thing about you know okay you can send me to a penal planet but i'm not taking the screens down you know Oh, to hell with you yeah uh, like that's the first time we've had him be so emphatic about the way that he defends the ship so loyal to yes. Kirk, and it's a really nice piece of character development for him
2: yeah it's also this is obviously not the first time that the crew have faced off against a bureaucrat um but i think giving that role to scotty really helps define his character and uh bring him into the fold
1: there's a story on memory alpha that says citation needed and i could not find a source anywhere else but it does say that that's a real incident that james dohan sort of went through in his military service um, mm. where a training exercise was going badly and he was calling it off even though supervisors were telling him to keep going um mm. and he that was like a, it's saying that it was like a story he told in the writers incorporated don't know how true that is but that's i mean an interesting if true yeah and i think that kind of is the benefit to having characters like Scotty and Uhura and Sulu, like, well, we don't know how to write these characters, but like be collaborative about it. Um, what can we, we can build them over time. that's how Sulu gets to love of fencing and everything. And Uhura can sing. It's by, yeah, a- I mean, it's
2: also, it's also just a good reminder, you know, with us talking about the cultural context that like a huge chunk of the people, both working on the show and watching the show had military experience, which is not, the case you know i think in 2023 the percentage of you know average americans who were in a war is so much lower now and i think it's it's an interesting aspect of the pacifist context to remember that this was kind of created by veterans for veterans in some ways
1: yeah that that really does color it a lot doesn't it it is just so fascinating how Mm -hmm. like the it's kind of why we won't get stories like this anymore in a way i mean not never say never i guess though the idea that what would happen that we would cause um veterans for veterans to be the pop culture norm uh, don't want to yeah. think of the implications of that but yeah it is it really does bring this like taste to it that the twilight zone also has as well as other mm-hmm. contemporary science fiction and we're naturally it's, it's gonna be missing
2: I mean, even just like I Dream of Genie, like, you know, that's about a military base. And it's like realizing that's actually a familiar world for the people who were watching it at the time rather than now where it's sort of very foreign.
0: It does also link back to that um, that thing that we were talking about earlier on, the idea like the horrors of war. You know, these, mm-hmm, the, yeah. the horrors of war is not an abstract concept for these people. These are people who have been through it, who have fought through it, who have had that experience and who desperately, desperately want to remind people how appalling this is and why we should do everything within our power to uh, call it off. I think one of the interesting things about the conclusion of the episode where Kirk manages to win manages to actually get these two opposing sides to sit down is that actually um other than the couple of people that we see walking into the the uh, destruction booths like nobody dies in this episode there's no red shirts that are killed in this episode it never becomes a hot war and we never find anything out about the other side we never find anything out about vendicar so it's 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 kind of all very sort of focused in it's it's all very much on this moment But ultimately, you know, yeah, these are people who have been through the horrors of war. They know what it's like, and they don't want that to be the future for other people. It it does lend a degree of power to the episode, I think.
2: Yeah, I think there's also this aspect to, uh, quote, the the great Brad Bird. uh, If everyone's a civilian, no one is (laughs) in this episode. like, Like, no one is getting sent off to war. There are no soldiers. And what that means is that, you know everybody, the counselor's wife or whatever, has the same chance of being a casualty. You know, there's no ability like like what Kirk does to step up and sacrifice your personal safety for the greater good. It's sort of everyone is in that position.
1: Yeah, I, I was just doing a quick search to confirm that, yes, Robert Hammer, who came up with a story and co-screenplay credit for this episode, does, uh, born 1928, so almost certainly served, or is yeah. at least of in that sort of generation, and, and, the and certainly to think that,
2: would have known people, you know, even the women would have yes. known people who, who served.
1: Right. But airing in 1967, we almost are that generation removed from World War II. Yeah. And so, and that is also like Summer of Love is about to happen and all college protests and all that.
2: Yeah. It's,
1: I mean, it's too much speculation to say this episode is pointed at hippies, but it's almost like... I could see like that almost being a sort of driving thing, where it's like if you want this pacifist society, I am also a pacifist. The person I'm speaking as the person writing it, but you can't like you still need to understand how bad it was to fully understand the idea of pacifism.
0: Well, and the the, the imperialistic kind of element and in the, in the way that the the federation through Kirk imposes itself on a society here kind of calls that into question as well. There's there's never really any doubt that whatever path Kirk takes is going to be the one which resolves this situation Um, and that is one of those things where Star Trek can be ever so slightly uncomfortable around because there is this sense that you know like the military is the solution and I know that Starfleet isn't like technically military at this point in fact it's pretty nebulously defined other than the idea that Kirk has occasionally said like we're not a ship of war or whatever okay fair enough but not every ship in the military is a ship of war um so there's there's still some wiggle room there um but it still there are still some imperialist attitudes here which go be above and beyond just you know you do everything you can to avoid the horrors of war Mm-hmm. This, this particular episode isn't really interested in, in interrogating that side of it it has a very strong point of view um and that's fine and it's something that star trek will return to uh in in the future particularly um in season two of of the original show there's there's a couple of episodes that address this but right here right now that imperialistic attitude is something which is This isn't the fault of this episode specifically, but it's starting to accrue. It's definitely the case in Return of the Archons where the Enterprise is extremely imperialistic it turns up it does what it wants it imposes its point of view and that point of view is right you're not allowed to question it um we've had a couple of other examples earlier in the season as well so it's not yet become overwhelming but there is now a sense that the sort of the imperialistic side of star trek is something that needs to be questioned it doesn't happen in this episode but we will have we will have those questions raised sort of going forward
2: yeah it is interesting usually i feel like when they have these like the crew versus a bureaucrat stories, usually the bureaucrat is an admiral. um, And in this instance, it's an ambassador who seems to have command authority over them for some reason.
0: (laughs) Um, Like ambassadors do, you know.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, But I think there is that aspect of the, um, sort of the diplomatic goals of the Federation in this instance being like, the ambassador is there to, get a federation treaty with these planets and they, those goals like where the federation is bringing another planet into the fold almost is more important to the ambassador than the lives of the crew. Whereas to the crew, like ending this war and getting away is way more important than whatever the Federation wants. Um, and so there's kind of an interesting dynamic tug of war there.
0: I mean, maybe the Federation just really needs textile plants that can turn out 1960s pop culture <laughs> trousers. Because, I mean... Oh my are, God,
2: those outfits are incredible. They
0: are really something, right? Because uh, I don't think that we can get through any discussion of this episode without A, mentioning those outfits, and B, the biggest... Space beehive haircut I've ever seen in my, oh my life. God. Oh my god. <laughs> I the mean the
2: hats, the hats that the oh
0: guards have. Hats <laughs> are spectacular. I want one. I would wear one of those to it like Comic Con. I honestly anyway. like I
2: do feel like the jumpsuits that they have where it's like one shoulder to one leg is like a different accent color. I do feel like I could see those like on, at, on ASOS or whatever, like right now. Like that would be trendy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's Star Trek's, like, the day glow aesthetic has weirdly aged so well in a way. Mm -hmm, Like, by standing out, it just, it locked itself into its time and also just still plays so well.
2: It is interesting with the beehive haircut, the beautiful woman in this episode really doesn't have a romance with Kirk. Like, there's almost very little interaction between them, but they still bring the camera out of focus every time that they shoot her. Oh, yeah. As if she's about to go into that romantic plot line, so uh,
1: yeah, I was definitely bracing it for it..
2: Like, yeah, it almost feels like they ran out of time for her to for her to make out with Kirk. Um, exactly.
1: Yeah, the way the camera focuses, but also like the music and the way Shatner acts, it's all like, all right, we've seen this a million times before. and credit to the episode for just like alighting that. and she she still serves. Very much a stock role, which is the beautiful woman who explains what's going on on the planet to Kirk. And Kirk that gives Kirk sympathy for people on the planet. Because, of course, he can never have sympathy for people on a planet unless it's a beautiful woman telling him to have sympathy for them.
2: Yeah, it just very much feels like they were going to have them have a romance and then realized they had too much other stuff to do. But she was already cast, so...
0: I remember when I was watching this episode, um, and she first comes on, um, thinking very strongly that um, the strings are swelling, and I suspect they're not the only thing. Um, but no. it was just it was it was kind of uncomfortable. But but it, that plot line gets disposed with very quickly. She's right. she's just a representation of, of yeah. She actually what spends Kurt's most to... of her
2: time with with Lady Redshirt. So.
0: Exactly. Well, I hope they had a
1: nice romance. You know that yeah. would be nice yeah i mean she was given instructions to sit on her so you know
2: <laughs> this episode i'm pretty sure does pass the bechdel test right because they do talk yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> very rare uh, original series bechdel test pass
1: yeah it's it is just interesting how like tight this episode is that every character is serving a function and not much more than that function um, with still room for, like, character dynamics and things like that, but there's definitely no extraneous subplots. There's no fat on this episode at all.
0: Definitely not. I do want to call out one other thing, though. I really want to mention uh, David Opatoshu's performance as an yes. answer, because I really oh, yes. like his performance. He's he's got I agree. He's got a kind of nice world weariness to him, where he's not... Like, he kind of is just, like, a stock bad guy, and that's fine, because that's the nature of an episode like this. Kirk needs somebody who, who he can um, square off against. But... But there is—I um, don't even know if it's necessarily in the script. Maybe it is just in in uh, in the performance. But there is that kind of world weariness. Like he just—he's kind of—he—he he seems kind of tired of the situation. He doesn't really want to have to explain it or go through it all. And that that kind of uh, resigned kind of nature to the performance really helps <laughs> mark out um and Anne seven is a a character who isn't just like the usual mustache twirler or foot stomper or whatever like he is the bad guy in this episode but you know he's as trapped by circumstances as anybody else Um, and you know
2: his he lost his own wife to the war
0: yeah exactly um but he just doesn't he doesn't have a broad enough worldview to break out of the patterns that his society has dictated for him it it requires kind of like the the uh the clash with the enterprise for his worldview to be uh, shattered. Same with the diplomat, really. In in, in many ways, they're exactly uh, murders of each other. The whole thing about um, Ambassador Fox is that, you know, when he's up in the enterprise, he's stomping his foot. He knows what's best. Diplomacy is best left to the diplomats and all that. But once he actually gets down to the planet and encounters the situation, he's the first to say, "Actually, I can learn new things. Actually, I can be flexible enough to try and come up with a new way of working." And he volunteers his service. So I think I think there's a nice mirroring of the way that Anand Seven and and the Ambassador work in this episode. Um, but I just I really love the I really love the the performance of Anand Seven. That that world weariness and resignation just really adds to the character.
2: I, I looked up up. He actually started his career in Yiddish theater. Oh, um, yeah. So an inter- and he also was a was a World War II veteran. Uh he was a he served in the Air Force in the South Pacific. So very interesting wow. set of uh experiences that may have fed into that performance.
1: Yeah. Uh, interesting
2: guy. It, interesting guy.
1: He is such a great foil for Shatner as well. Like mm-hmm. even if in some of those early scenes, Shatner we were talking about sort of in the groove, not bringing his A game. Um uh Opa Toshu sort of almost makes up for it with his energy of like being this like very stonewall you get this sense of like unstoppable force meets an immovable object and obviously the immovable object is going to move so the episode can conclude but um, until that point until Kirk brings him to his breaking point he is very good at just sort of stonewalling him the entire time and it's you believe him believing his convictions.
2: It's also so funny to me that the characters have those names, like he's Anon 7, the pretty woman is Maya 3, they all have numbers in their names, and it never really comes up or is explained why that's the case. Yeah, nobody ever
0: mentions that, do they? They just have numbers. (laughs) Like
2: for a while, I thought I was mishearing it, and it was just a sound, but no, they all have numbers in their names, and it's just something that never comes up
1: it feels very golden age sci-fi where it's just like yep. how is this planet different because we, we can't afford like antenna or ears so it's like numbers <laughs> in the name that's good enough yeah although
2: i will say like the map paintings in this episode are astounding
0: oh yes yes absolutely uh, the, Unusually the whole, good, de- I think. whole design aesthetic of this episode is phenomenal
2: unbelievable it could
0: not be more 1960s it's all like straight bold Primary colored pop art, but it's the glorious. funny shaped
2: doorways are so good.
0: Love a funny mm. shaped doorway.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting to see like almost the per episode budget fluctuate throughout the show, and <laughs> yeah. sometimes you get an episode like this where it's like they clearly had like they are bringing themselves and they had the time, and they had the energy, and the money to like really outdo themselves with a really good looking set and environment, or even just ingenuity. Maybe even it wasn't like more resources, but they mm. had something here over say like a space seed or something like that mm-hmm.
2: absolutely yeah i think this the one of the matte paintings from this episode is one of the ones that shows up in the end credits uh repeatedly yeah
1: um yeah. and
2: well deserved th- they're very good
1: absolutely i i think we are wrapping up i mean to put a bow on it yeah that's i don't know <laughs> Unless yeah, i don't say any objections so. <laughs> i was just saying i was thinking like well yeah that that point I just made, that's such a great point, but was about um, just this episode having, uh, yeah, this. they brought their A-game this episode. It, The writing, the, the cast, the crew, like on almost all four levels. Uh, this was a really well-done episode of Star
0: Trek and I'm so happy to have seen it. Uh,
2: yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Really great episode.
0: Well, if we're all praising the episode so much, I guess that means we have to give it a score. So, ah. uh, yeah. Um, so out of 10, uh, Rachel, what would you like to give this episode?
2: Oh, I have to go first. Uh, you know, I think this is a nine episode for me. It's not maybe like one of my all time, like top five, but I really like it. It's great. It does everything Star Trek is supposed to do. Um, and it looks amazing. So I'm going to give it a nine. Yeah.
1: I'll mirror that because I'll go next because I'm mirroring. That's what I meant to say. Uh, Yeah, it's it still can't touch the one I've given to balance of terror. That is still the end all be all for me so far. But taste of Armageddon definitely nine. It is such a fun episode television. I had such a great time watching it and it really does exemplify what is like best about this show.
0: I'm not just saying this to annoy you, but I'm going to give it eight and a half. Um, Do it. <laughs> uh, I Do think. It. I think. I mean, you've both said exactly the reasons that I. I think uh, this episode stands out. Um, I feel there's a couple. Of, there's a couple of minor logic flaws in it, and there's uh, maybe just a little bit too much um, sloppiness from Shatner for it to be really elevated. But I think mm-hmm. it's a great conceit. I think it's perfect, like classic age sci-fi. And there's. Uh, yeah, there's just so much to enjoy here. There's so much meat in the bone. And again, like this late in the season, that's absolutely not guaranteed. So I'm yeah, I'm going to go with eight and a half in this one, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I, it does say a lot that, not to throw our most recent run of like four or five episodes under the bus, I, with, mm-hmm. we had very lovely guests and had a great time doing, but it says a lot that we've gone on so much longer this week
0: than our previous uh, run. <laughs> yeah, I think that probably does have a, a, a very good reason behind it. mm. Lovely, right. Well, I think we can probably leave this episode there for now and move on to our recommendations. Rachel, I'm sorry, I'm going to get you to go first again because that's just oh, sure. a I thing I'm doing this week. So <laughs> um, what would you like to recommend for us this week? Uh,
2: well, I've been rereading uh, Anne Leckie's novel, The Raven Tower, which I did the lovely thing of waiting just long enough to have forgotten the plot before I reread it. And it's so good and I highly recommend it whether you've read her other novels or not, it's uh, it's a real great fantasy novel. So I'm going to recommend that.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh,
1: Kev, what would you like to recommend? Uh, Yesterday, just yesterday, I saw a movie called Showing Up. It's the latest movie by Kelly Reichardt, who is this, if you don't know the name, she's this wonderful indie director. I don't think, first cow is i guess her best well-known movie but like none of them have really had that mainstream breakout but she has just been quietly working for the last couple of decades just churning out these very quiet lovely little indie dramedies uh, or sometimes straight up dramas but uh coming up is definitely more on the comedic side it's about michelle williams as a artist in a not quite a commune not quite a school somewhere in between in portland and she like works on the staff there because her mother runs it and is also like a sculptor herself, but you get the sense that her art is not the best and she doesn't really know what she's doing in life. Um, And it's just sort of these interactions she's having with people around her, um, with her parents, with her brother, with her neighbor slash friend slash landlord, which is a very fraught relationship to have with someone, um, with her her cat and this pigeon that winds up getting rescued in ways I won't spoil. Um, A lot of like interesting people in her life and, how she sort of can't deal with the complex emotions that they bring up in her, and instead just tries to ignore those kind of complicated emotions. So it's a very close to the chest emotionally movie, but in that kind of Kelly Reichardt way, if you're familiar, like at the end, there's a huge catharsis in an unconventional way. It's what I'll say, Um, yeah, it's so lovely. And I love it whenever Michelle Williams works with Reichardt, it's so, and Kong Chao is the neighbor. So, and it's a great casting there. Um, it's, yeah, I had such a great time watching it and I can't wait to recommend it to everyone else, including the people listening to this podcast.
0: All right. Lovely. Um, I'm also going to recommend a movie and because I really have my pulse on, uh, the cinematic, uh, cinematic vein, uh, I'm going to recommend last year's Nope, uh, the Jordan Peele movie, um, because, you know, I get around to things eventually and guess what? Everybody said this movie is great and it turns out this movie is great. It's absolutely lovely. I mean, it's such a, a such a great piece of cinema. Um, of course, uh, you know, written and directed by Jordan Peele, absolutely uh, phenomenal. Uh, Daniel Kaluha is great, giving this incredibly kind of understated performance. Kiki Palmer's phenomenal in it. The indescribably brilliant, also hot, Stephen Yoon is uh, is great in it. It's just such a, a lovely piece. It's very very thoughtful and considered i love the design work in it i think it's absolutely incredible it's just a phenomenal film like everybody knows that nope is a great film why am i talking about this so mm. long after it's been released i don't know i just got around to seeing it i really loved it so uh, so that's my recommendation this week i'm going with
1: nope don't think you especially shout out kiki palmer but that's my favorite performance in nope i love her so much and
0: i just need oh, to shout her every time Nope comes out oh yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely you, you'll get no argument from me at all Um, And yeah, we can leave our recommendations there and also then move on to plugs. So, uh, Rachel, do you have anything you'd like to plug?
2: Uh, Not at the moment. I have, at times, hosted a podcast called The Channing Salon, which is a show about the filmography of Channing Tatum. And I would love for anybody to look that up, but it is currently in hiatus. So, (laughs) not exactly a super to the moment plug, but, uh, you know, that's what I got.
0: Lovely. Thank you very much. Um, and Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us?
1: Uh, yes, you can uh, find Talking Trek to You on Twitter at Talk Trek to You. I am on Twitter at Kev K E V K O E S E R. JG's writings are at www.jgmcquarie.scott. Uh I also frequently guest in the podcast Total Massacre, hosted by Rowan Kaiser. Uh, which is about action movies. JG's other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, where he and Andrew Deacon go through the Beatles song by song. And please like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcatcher you're using to help other people find it.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, Rachel, for joining us this week.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I see that you guys have some really great ones coming up. So very excited for you.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. And it's been absolutely lovely to have you as always, of course. So Thank you. Um, we can take uh, our rest there and fly off into the vacuum of space for this week. Next episode. Well, we're going to be visiting this side of paradise. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.